chapters of the book of the prophet Jonah. I invite you to listen now for the word of God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk. And he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, No human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush, And made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, 
is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. So Jonah is in his own kind of Lent. Three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, where he has been swallowed up in a kind of rescue mission, you might say. He's been forced to stop, to stop fleeing, to stop hiding to stop justifying himself, to stop any attempts at self-preservation. He is completely in that place at the mercy of God who has taken him down into this silent, deep space preparing him three days, three nights of darkness and discernment in the depths. The poet uh, Christian Wyman, past editor of Poetry Magazine and current professor at Yale, went silent for not three days and three nights, but for three years. Before that three-year period, he was a celebrated and frequently published poet who had found a, a national and indeed an international audience. He was also a self-proclaimed agnostic, a result, he said, of his very strict religious upbringing as a West Texas Baptist. But along the way, Wyman met a woman and fell in love. And the act of falling in love, he said, loosened something within him opening him to faith again. He returns to church with his new wife and begins again opening those varied gifts of faith. And very soon after that return to church, he was diagnosed with an incurable blood disease. And in the throes of his illness, where he many times came right to the doorstep of death and peered over the abyss, he went silent for three years. He didn't write a single line of poetry. It's a time he writes uh, that he grappled with his illness He grappled with the hard fact of death, and he grappled with God. It is his own Lent, his own Jonah-like descent into the depths. 
And then, like Jonah, at the end of three years rather than three days, he finds his voice again. He, he spit out of the belly of the fish on some bright shore, and he said, I, I sat down, and in one sitting I wrote my first poem in three years. That poem, entitled Every Ribbon Thing, remains one of his most celebrated and is the name of a book of poems published in 2010. I know that not everyone is into poetry, but it would be worth your time, I think, to live with this poem during Lent. I won't share the whole thing here, but we'll provide space for you to access it later. For today, I only want to lift one refrain, a refrain that occurs four separate times in the poem, and each time it occurs, it is broken up with a different kind of punctuation so that it brings out various meanings. The refrain is, God goes belonging to every riven thing he's made. Riven, R-I-V-E-N, that's an old word that Wyman recovers here. It's the sort of word old Gideon Blackburn would have used from First Presbyterian's pulpit back in 1811. Riven means broken, It means shattered or wounded or unhealed. In the poem, Lyman asserts in the face of his own close and ongoing brush with death, in the depths of his own suffering, that God goes with him into it, belonging to every riven thing he's made, every. That's the word, the operative word for me in the poem, every. And the word seems operative in the Jonah story as well. Nineveh is about as far removed from God as you can get. At least that's what Jonah thought. From the beginning, God seems to have had a deeper perspective on the Ninevites than does Jonah. They may be corrupt, and indeed they are. They may terrorize their own people. Their hands may be filled with blood. They may be morally decayed. But God goes. God sees all of this, it seems, as as a symptom of a much more a much deeper and more universal condition. We hear it at the very end. They are like children who don't know their right hand from their left. They are broken, riven. And their actions, all of these actions, spring from this broken space in which which they do not even understand. They don't know their right hand from their left. And so God goes. God summons the prophet. 
And when Jonah runs, God chases him down in a storm. And when Jonah is thrown overboard, God chases him down again and gives him the gift of time apart, a Lenten fast in the belly of the fish. And when Jonah is spit on dry land, God chases him down and summons him again. And when Jonah goes half-heartedly preaching one of the most boring sermons you'll ever hear into Nineveh, God's grace suddenly floods the scene. Repentance breaks out everywhere. And we are made to understand that everything means everything. That all means all. And that these Ninevites, who do not know their right hand from their left, are God's beloved too. The object of God's deep concern. And when Jonah, burning with anger because of God's grace, removes himself from the city and watches for its destruction, detached and uncaring, God chases him down yet again. What are we to make of this relentless pursuit of God's grace? It extends to Jonah It extends to the Ninevites. It extends to the animals, which is a stand-in for all of creation. God goes, belonging to every riven thing he's made. Jonah grew up saying the creed, not the same one we say, but close. It's a creed that shows up in the Old Testament Eight times in Exodus, in Numbers, in Nehemiah, four times in the Psalter, and in the prophet Joel. The creed? The Lord is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. That creed had burrowed its way into the soul of Jonah, so much so that he knew, in, in, a, in a great irony of this text, he knew deep within the moment God called him to go to the Ninevites, he knew that God would be true to who God was, gracious and merciful. And Jonah himself could not muster the same grace he knew his God would. But no matter, God's grace and mercy extended to Jonah as well. Again and again, God puts him in the place where he can come to know the grace his ancient creed proclaims. Contemporary theologian Marilyn McCord Adams spent her life pursuing some of the questions we are wrestling with this Lent. She affirms that one of the bedrock affirmations of our faith is that God created the world as it is and that God created the world in such a way that human beings and all creation are subject to what she calls horrors 
She believes that God created the world in this specific way in order to grant space for vulnerable human beings to be in authentic relationship with one another, to learn how to love one another, and to learn how to love God. But that very freedom and space, she writes, makes us uniquely vulnerable to being hurt and to hurting others and to hurting the creation itself. We, to use God's words about the Ninevites, are like children who don't know our right hand from our left. And the evidence lies all around us. But Adams goes on to say that because God made the world in this way, God ultimately takes responsibility for it and has provided in every instance of suffering, in every horrific situation, the greatest gift God can give to another person, which is the gift of intimacy with God, the gift of communion with God. It is a gift that can be difficult to see and embrace when we're in the midst of suffering, which is why she says the community of faith is so vital. It is in the community of faith that we are nurtured in the scriptures and the creeds. It is here that we are encouraged in prayer with and for one another. It is here that we walk alongside those who suffer. It is here that we affirm faith when others among us are not able to. It is here that we help one another open this wondrous gift, the gift of communion with God, the gift of union with the grace that made us and sustains us. This is what Jonah discovers on his next day after the storm and the fish and the plant and the worm and the hot east wind, what he discovers, if he's willing to hear it, is what John would say much later, that God is love. This is the root of all else that God is. And because God is love, God goes, belonging to every riven thing he's made. And whatever we want to say about God's power, it must always be subservient to God's love. We leave Jonah on the hillside looking over the redeemed city. God's gracious invitation in his ears The story ends and we don't know how Jonah will respond. Will he remain in anger, unable to embrace? Or will he go down into the beloved and broken and suffering and redeemed city to be part of what God is is doing there? We do not know as far as Jonah is concerned. The text is silent. But as for us... Let us go with God, belonging to every ribbon thing he's made. The invitation is ours this morning.
come to the table of grace, where ordinary bread and wine become signs for us of God's great gift buried in deepest suffering, in a broken body, in shed blood, we discover the love that made us and sustains us. Let us come down into the city and dine together in peace. Amen.